Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. Today we will read and close out the Upper Room Discourse. I went back and figured out that we have been in the Upper Room, John 13 to 16, we've been in there for 15 weeks. So today we close that out, but I also did a little bit more investigating. I went back and looked at my notes of when we actually started the Gospel of John. We started the Gospel of John May 1st of 2020, so almost two years ago. But, but that's kind of our DNA of going deep. We, one of our core values here is, is that we disciple biblically. So going into the text, spending a long time examining the scriptures, kind of what makes us us. The mission of Calvary Bible Church is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. So after 15 weeks in the Upper Room Discourse, today we close out this section of Scripture. But what I want you to see is really three things that Jesus leaves them with, but then one thing, one act that makes it all possible, all of the promises we have in the Upper Room. I'm going to begin in verse 25 in our text, and then I will bring up verse 29 up here. John 16, these things I've spoken to you in Proverbs, an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language or Proverbs, but I will speak plainly of the Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for, explains why, for the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and have come into this world. I'm leaving the world again, and I'm going to the Father. Verse 29, and his disciples said, Woe, or lo, or hold up. Now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you have come from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you. Why? Result, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble and tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Before we go into John chapter 16, I'm going to read a passage and then I'll very quickly pray and then we will go. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascended to heaven, you are there. If I made my bed as shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be my night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. How precious are your thoughts towards me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they should outnumber the sand of the sea. When I awake, I am still with you. So search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Father, search us. Know us. Know our mind and our heart. Lord, I pray uh, that your spirit would be our guide and our teacher and our leader and bring us clarity of your word. Lord, I pray that we would then prove ourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers. 
Thank you for this church. I thank you for the honor and the privilege it is to take our time to go through your word and to see how it is relevant and how it changes our lives. May it be practical today and change us. We lift it up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn to the Gospel of John, John chapter 16. That is where we will be today. But this morning, I would like to begin with a question. Why would somebody want to be a Christian? Why would somebody want to become a Christian? If WHT 19 ran up to you in the parking lot, that happened to me one time, um, not here though, but if WHT 19 ran up to you and asked you that exact question, why would you, anyone want to become a Christian, what would you say? But let's narrow it just a little bit. Based on the uproom discourse alone, over the last 15 weeks, why would anybody want to be a Christian? What are some of the promises that we have in Christ because of what He has done? That as a Christian, you have the hope of eternal life, based on the uproom discourse alone. As a Christian, you worship the way, the truth, and the life. As a Christian, you have joy that no one can take from you. As a Christian, you have the comfort from the Holy Spirit while you are hurting. As a Christian, you have joy replete when you pray. As a Christian, you have the helper, the guiding, teaching you, and leading you to all truth. As a Christian, just based on the uproom discourse alone, what do you have? You have the comfort of Christ's return. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. As a Christian, you have clarity in a confusing world. As a Christian... What do you have? You have peace that surpasses all comprehension. You have access to the Father and you can know Him and know His love. And as a Christian, you have the ability to leave an eternal fruit of legacy. That is the promises that we see in the upper room. But I have another question for you this morning. How is all that made possible? Just in the upper room alone, we see these promises. This does not include all of the other books of the New Testament. Just in these four chapters, we see these promises given to all people who claim the cross of Christ. But the question is not just what promises do we have, but how was it all made possible? How were all of the promises of God made possible for us today? That is the question, and that is the question that Jesus answers in the upper room, in the last piece of the upper room discourse. So if you have your Bible, today we are reading and unpacking for verses 29 through 33. And in this section, Jesus is preparing his disciples for ministry. He is preparing his 11 disciples because Judas has already exited stage left. He is preparing his 11 disciples for a life of ministry without him. And today, in one simple phrase probably the most magnificent phrase in the whole of the Upper Room Discourse, in one simple phrase, he tells us how all of these promises are made possible to them and to us. So if you have your text, notice it with me. We're going to begin with the context. And I want you, as we go into the context of John chapter 16, what is the context? It is the chapters that surround the passage. But I want you to think about a great novel, a great book or story, what is one of the best books you've ever written, or never written, read, what do almost all novels have in common? Each novel is broken up into chapters, and some novels have parts that contain chapters themselves. 
The Gospel of John has 21 chapters and has five parts, so to speak. John chapter 13 through 16 is really part four of the Gospel of John. It is a section of scripture that I've already labeled the Upper Room Discourse, but only, ironically, only half of the Upper Room Discourse is actually given to his disciples in the Upper Room. But what is the point? You know, oftentimes it's not until you finish the movie or you finish a book before you can actually look back and see the totality of the story. What is the point of the Upper Room Discourse? He is preparing his disciples for a life without him. He is preparing them for a life of ministry. And that's what I want to talk to you today. A life, preparing you for a life of serving the Lord. Very quickly, let us remember kind of where we are in the whole Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is preparing his disciples for a life of serving him, for a life of following him. So what has he already taught them? In John chapter 13, what is really the one lesson that he teaches them in that one chapter? He teaches them about humility. How does he do that? He exits stage left. He gets up out of his chair. After they are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, Jesus walks out to the front porch, picks up a water jar, brings it back in, grabs a bowl, and washes the disciples' feet. What is his lesson to the disciples, to us today, all those who follow him? Is that ministry, following God, being his disciple, being his follower, is not about hubris, but is about humility. We've all known Christians that seem more interested in their own agenda and what they want more than what Christ wants. Amen. But that's not the Christian life. That's not what it's all about. That following God is about humility, not about hubris. And then in John chapter 14, he really accelerates. Because he, see, he talks to Judas and he talks to Peter in John chapter 13, but then he just kind of zooms in in 14 through 16, really talking to his disciples about what it means to follow God. In John 14... Jesus assures them that they are troubled in spirit. They are scared because their Savior is leaving. And what does he remind them of there? That in ministry, following God, anytime we are nervous, anytime we are scared, what should we do? We should lift up our eyes to see what awaits us. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. That in ministry, continuing on in John 14, ministry requires faith and not sight. Following God means to keep or to obey His commandments. Following the Lord is assisted by the Holy Spirit giving us peace. John chapter 14, verse 27. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. What does Jesus talk about there? He talks about the fruit that we can bear. What is the fruit that we bear? The fruit of the Spirit is love. John 15, 1 through 4. Following God, we should bear the fruit of love by abiding in Christ. Then in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, that section of scripture, I see it now in my head. What is the lesson, what is the point to all followers of Jesus Christ that we are to love one another? If I am ever known for one message, I hope it is for that. It is for love, that the calling of a Christian is to love God and to love one another and then to make disciples. Can I get an amen? And if we love one another, what does it say of us? That we become a philoi, a friend of God. John chapter 15, the end, what does Jesus warn them about? Jesus warns them about persecution to come, that if they mistreated Jesus, they will mistreat all followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because our relationship with the world is antithetical. John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. What does Jesus tell his disciples? Since this is the last week in the Upper Room Discourse, I'm doing an extensive review. John chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus teaches his disciples again about persecution. And how do they overcome it? They overcome it by expecting what is to come so they do not lose faith. John 16, 5 through 
15, what does Jesus teach them about? He teaches them about the Spirit of God. That when the Spirit comes, it does a lot of things. But what does it do to the world, to believers, and to those hurting? It brings comfort to the hurting. It brings conviction of sin to the world. And it brings clarity to believers. And then in John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22, Jesus isolates on one particular topic. He isolates on the Greek word kara, the Greek word joy, that they are, should be joyful even in the midst of Jesus being gone in the crucifixion while he is laying in the tomb. Why? Because they know he will resurrect. They will know that all suffering is temporary and they will see their Savior again. And then last week, okay, last week, if I've lost you, if I've been over your head already this morning, I apologize. John chapter 16, verses 23 through 28, what does Jesus teach his disciples about? We talked about this last week. He teaches his disciples about prayer. That we have access to the Father. That the sacrifice has been made, the veil has been torn, and we have access to God in our prayers. That we no longer have to go through some sacrificial system that the Jews and that Peter and all the disciples would understand at this time. But that we can ask the Father and that we will receive answers. Because of the Son's obedience and the Father's love, we receive answers, joy, and access. Surprised I didn't get a round of applause for all that. Okay. Thank you. I got the one person that clapped for me. Appreciate it. But I want you to take a step back real quick and just look at this section of Scripture from a bird's eye perspective. He is preparing his disciples for a life without him, preparing his disciples for ministry. So if you take a step back and kind of put John chapter 13 to 60 into today's context, what is it? What is this section of Scripture? It is a user manual on how to really be a follower of Jesus Christ, how to really serve Him. Uh, for Christmas, my daughters, and I've mentioned this, I think the Sunday before or after Christmas, my, for Christmas we bought my daughters this wood playhouse kitchen. And it came in, I think, a thousand different pieces. And I really hate putting stuff together like that. It drives me crazy. Now, I, when, when I open this box, there's pieces everywhere. And so what could I have done? I, I could have just tried to piece it all together and it would have come out all cattywampus. But instead, what did I do? I found the user manual and I abided by it. That's the upper room discourse. If you want to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you want to know what it means to serve Him, that is what the details we have in this section of Scripture. It is our user manual. If you're serving in Awana, if you're discipling your children, if you're an elder or deacon here, if you're a Sunday school teacher here, if you're wanting to know how to lead your children, the user manual is right here in the text. But today we close it out. We close out this section of Scripture. And what I see with this framework in mind, if you could put on the shoes of the disciples, Jesus has one last memo for the disciples. He wants to leave them with three things. But these three things we each need here today. I can promise you that. But it's only made possible by one thing that Jesus has done, which we find in verse 33. So if you have your text with you, Jesus gives them three points to prepare his disciples for ministry and then one way that it is made possible. Notice with me in your text, John chapter 16, verses, verse 29 is where we will pick up today. And I'll just read it and then I'll back up to the context of verse 25. His disciples said, Lo, Ida, in the original language, or we would say, Woe, or hold up, what, what, what did you just say? 
The disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and you are not using a figure of speech. What are they referring to there? They're referring to what Jesus has said in verses 25 through 29. So back up with me to verse 25. These things, Jesus, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language, Proverbs, and an hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in this way, but will speak plainly of the Father, and in that day you will ask in my name. And then I say to you that I will request on the Father on your behalf. Why? For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from the Father. I came forth from the Father and came into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. And then again in verse 29, his disciples said, Lo, now you are speaking plainly and you are not using a figure of speech. And if you notice here in verse 29 and 30, there are actually three different results or three different outcomes for Jesus' discourse or treatise in verses 25 through 28. The first result is their shock. Lo, now you're speaking plainly to us, and you are not using a figure of speech. It seems to be that Jesus is kind of connecting the dots in their mind, that all of a sudden things are starting to make sense. They have already believed that Jesus is the Son of God, but now they believe that God is sent by God and that He knows all things. Notice verse 30 again. Now we know that you know all things. And have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. What are the three results to his disciples from verses 25 through 28? Number one is shock. They are surprised. Lo, that, that is the Greek word, ida, which shows surprise or woe. But then you see in verse 30, the other two results is that they know that Jesus is sovereign. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. They should have already figured that one out, I guess. And then number three, they know that Jesus is sent by God. They know, by this we believe that you came from God. They are shocked. They know that God is sovereign. And then they know that Jesus was sent by God. And then notice verse 31. Jesus answered them and said, Do you now believe? What kind of belief is that? That's the question I had this week as I was unpacking this text. Because as I looked at verse 31, and Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? What is he actually talking about there? Because haven't they already believed in Jesus as the Messiah? You know, in John chapter 1, they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter proclaims Jesus to be the Son of the living God. Haven't they already believed in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God? So then what is Jesus talking about here in verse 31? It says, Do you now believe? Preparing for ministry, serving the Lord, requires us that we cultivate faith, that we are saved by faith, and then we also live by faith. In my opinion, in verse 31, their faith seems to be expanded. That now they know, not only is Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God, but now they know that Jesus himself is sovereign over all creation, that he knows all things. And why is that important? Based on verse 32. They know he knows all things, but they also know that he is sent from the Father, and will return to it. Their faith is expanded. I'm going to say it this way. Faith cannot be stagnant. Your faith here today, friends, listen to me. Your faith cannot be stagnant. It is always dynamic. In other words, this, your faith in God is either growing or it is shriveling away. 
about 20 years ago now, I had a youth pastor here at Calvary Bible Church take all the youth group to the mall, the Parkway Place Mall, okay, and that's when people shopped at malls, okay, uh, now it's all on Amazon. Um, I still shop at malls sometimes. But, but you see, and he, he brought us in the entire youth group down to the first floor of the mall, in Parkway Place Mall, and then really randomly you saw this guy trying to walk up the down escalator. Has anybody ever seen anything like that before? It, it was really kind of a strange sight because we didn't have any idea what this guy was actually doing. We thought he had lost his mind there for just a second. But he would soon have one simple illustration that you are either growing in your faith or you are shriveling in your faith. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your place, you have been sealed through the Holy Spirit on the day of promise. You have been, you, you cannot lose what you did not earn. That is not in question at all. But your faith can grow or it can shrivel based on your efforts. Here in John chapter 16, verse 30, what I see is that the disciples are cultivating their faith. They are growing in their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. They not only now, now know that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of the living God, but they know that He is sovereign and that He is sent from God. In my opinion, this is an area of a deficient faith in their lives. They didn't understand, really fully understand, that Jesus is really sovereign over all of creation until this very moment. Clearly, this is an area of deficient faith for them. Let me just ask you the question, what is an area of deficient faith for you? We all have areas in our faith, areas in our life, areas in our following of God that are deficient. Some of us really struggle to understand if God is really a God that loves me. Some of us really struggle to understand that God is a God that is sovereign, that knows all things. What is an area of your life that you have deficient faith? The first thing that you see in John chapter 16, verses 29 through 33, is that they are cultivating their faith. They are growing in it. They are expanding their understanding of who Jesus Christ truly is. And why is that important? Why is it important for them to, at this exact moment, to know that Jesus knows all things, that He is sovereign and that He is sent by the Father and then will return to the Father? Why is this important? Verse 32. Because very soon they, they will be scattered to their homes. They will be persecuted. They will encounter tribulation. And in that day, they will all of a sudden have expanded their faith to believe that Jesus Christ has ordained that moment, that He knows all things, that they can trust Him. Even in times that do not make sense, it is imperative that they understand that Jesus is sovereign. Friends, nothing in your life is a surprise to God. It might have been a surprise to you, but there is nothing in your life that is a surprise to God. Every event of your life, both good and bad, God knew about before it happened. Why? Because He knows all things. Have faith. Grow in it. Don't become complacent. Cultivate your faith. But then notice verse 31 again, and then let's go into verse 32. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because my Father is with me. Faith is required. Why? Because verse 32, that they will be scattered... And why did Jesus t- 
tell them all these things. Notice with me verse 33. He encourages them to cultivate their faith for what is to come because they will be scattered, they will be persecuted, they will be misunderstood and marginalized, they will be mocked, they will be scattered, scarred, and shattered. But then notice why Jesus tells them all these things. For the rest of our time today, I'm going to spend it really just on verse 33 because there is just so much going on. These things I have spoken to you. I'm going to pause right there for just a second. That is a very important phrase. These things I have spoken to you. What is he referring to? In my humble opinion, he is referring to all of the promises given to them in the upper room. So Jesus, with this one phrase, is going all the way back to John chapter 13, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you, so that purpose, result. Circle it if you have a pen. That is a Greek word, hina. These things I've spoken to you, all of the promises that I have spoken to you, that all this stuff, why? So that you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. Prepare for ministry, how? By claiming peace. We have the peace. It is a gift that God has given us through His Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 27 But this week, I kind of went on a scavenger hunt, so to speak. I'm a secret, it's not really a secret anymore, but I'm a super big nerd when it comes to the Bible and all things related to Greek. Um, But the, the idea of, my idea of peace was wrong. And so allow me to change your idea of what Jesus means by that you may have peace. The idea that we have of peace is tranquility. Peace is, we find peace when we walk beside a gentle creek, or when we feel good, or we have our morning cup of coffee. Can anybody relate to that one? I love coffee in the morning. But the peace here is not that. It's not simply tranquility. It is shalom. It is the peace of God. The sense of complete well-being that characterizes the life living in accordance with the design of God. A peace that comes from acting on the promises of God. This is shalom. This is a complete well-being. This is a life change, even in the midst of vast uncertainty. The close relationship between peace and prayer is seen in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. It says this, if you do not have this verse in your Bible highlighted, I would encourage you to do so. Philippians 4, 6 says what? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you serve others, when you minister, when you participate in small group, when you, when you teach the scripture, when you lead your children, when you lead a small group, when you are an elder or a deacon, or whatever way you're ministering to the Lord, you have peace should not only cultivate your faith, you should not only look at the faith that you have and see the deficient areas that you have, do you believe that God is sovereign and that God is love, but you also should claim the peace of God. The peace of God is yours. Let me say it this way. The peace of God is yours despite how you feel. Feelings can be misleading, amen? The peace of God is yours in abundance. It has been given to you. It is promised to you. Claim it. Claim it. 
that in, even in the midst of verse 32, if you feel scattered amongst your homes, if you feel displaced by God, if you don't have any understanding of what the Lord is doing in your life, claim the peace of God as it says in John chapter 14, verse 27. It says, this is Jesus speaking in the upper room, guys. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. That is the tranquility of peace. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Claim peace. Can I just say something real quick? Sometimes we've become so fixated on a problem that we forget the peace that we really have. Have you ever been that? Sometimes we are so captivated by the problems in our life, whether it's a diagnosis or whether it's a conflict with your spouse or with your child, we become so ingrained in problems that we forgo and we forget the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. The question I have today is, will you let it go? Will you claim peace that has been given to us? Cultivate faith. Claim peace. And then notice the last little, two little phrases in John chapter 16, verse 33. These things I've spoken to you, the upper room, all of John chapter 13 to 16. These things I've spoken to you so that you may have peace. Why do you need peace? Because in the world you have tribulation or trials or troubles But take courage, I have overcome the world. In the midst of tribulation, in the midst of them being scattered, persecuted, and misunderstood, they have the ability to be courageous. Preparing for ministry happens by cultivating your faith, claiming peace, and by carrying with you courage. Why do they need courage? Because their lives are about to completely fall apart. Their Savior is about to live. He's about to, in their eyes, in a lot of ways, abandon them. But he's about to send the helper, the paraclete, the Spirit of God. And they will need not only a courageous faith, they will need not only a peace, but also they will need courage to share and to be bold. Those of you who have served the Lord for a long period of time, let me just ask you a question. If you've been elder or deacon, if you've been a pastor, I won't say anything there. Uh, if you've ever been an elder or deacon, there's a thought that came into mind and the filter grabbed it, praise the Lord. Okay. If you have ever served in ministry, do you ever need courage? Do you ever need boldness? Yeah, there's so many times in life when we serve the Lord that we just need to have an honest accountability a conversation with somebody. Sometimes we need to speak the truth in love. Does that take courage? Does it take courage to share your faith? Does it take courage to lead your family? You bet. We need courage in our daily life, and we have been given it. But how is all this made possible? How was all of this made possible? How were all of the promises of God that we see in the upper room? I'm just going to grab a few. How were all these given to us? John 16, verse 33. Beautiful phrase. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace, and in the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The word overcome here is a military term. It denotes military victory in warfare. The perfect tense for this word for overcome emphasizes the abiding nature of that victory. 
One scholar adds this, that we are expected to be at peace because by faith we have been brought into an inseparable union and Jesus Christ is share in his victory over sin and Satan. Jesus has overcome the world. How do I know that the promises of God are true? Because he has won. The military victory over sin and Satan is complete. Jesus has overcome the world, Satan and the effects of sin, and he allows us. He allows you. He allows you. He allows you. He allows you. He allows you to share in the victory with him. This phrase in the end of John chapter 16 reminded me of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. That famous, very famous verse is, for nerds is called Proto-Euanglium. It is the very first mention of the Messiah in the Bible, that at the very moment sin was introduced into the world, that at that exact moment a Messiah was promised that there would come one from the seed of the woman that will bruise his heel on the head of the serpent. In other words, what? That one day the Messiah will come and he will overcome the world. He will bruise his head on the heel of the serpent. That one day the effects of sin will be conquered. That one day we can have eternal life and a changed earthly life. And that by Jesus Christ, by him dying on the cross, and our victory is proclaimed in the empty tomb. And that he gives to us today victory with him. He has overcome the world, and with Him we have, we can claim victory. And the trophy of His victorious conquering over sin is Satan, is the trophy of the redemption of mankind. You may be fearful, you may be uncertain of what your life lies ahead, you may be fearful that you'll be scattered like the disciples, but in that day, this is what I'm going to ask of you today. The point of the passage, in my humble opinion, is that last phrase in John chapter 16, that he has overcome the world. Because with that one phrase, all of the promises of God are sure. The point today that I see in John chapter 16, and this point tormented me this week, I worked, wrestled with this text, is this, that we are victors. We share in it with Him. We are victors through Christ. So we then, what? Should cultivate faith. We should claim the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. And we should carry with us courage. We are victors through Christ. So cultivate faith, claim peace, and carry with us courage. But you today, that's good information, right? I mean... So what? How do we take this text and apply it to our lives in the 21st century in Huntsville, Alabama? This is what I'm going to encourage you to do tonight. I don't want you to wait till tomorrow because you probably struggled to remember what you had for dinner last night, much less what I say here this morning. That's okay. It's cool. Um, if a lot of this goes over here, it's fine. It's part of life. It's cool. I'm not condemning. It's just the way it is. Okay. What I would encourage you to do is before you go to sleep tonight, I want you to pick a trait. I want you to look at your spiritual life, and I want you to look at your faith, your peace, and your courage. Your faith, your peace, and your courage. And I want you to just go to the Lord, maybe after your children go to bed, just spend an extra 10 or 15 minutes. I'm not asking for much here. Just go to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, what do I need to work on? Do I need to cultivate my faith more? Do I really believe in who you really are? Do I have a peace in my life? Do I really trust you or am I just driven by stress and anxiety? Or do I need to be courageous? 
Is there somebody in my life that needs to hear the gospel? Is there somebody in my life that needs a hard conversation? Is there a spouse that I have that needs to be reconciled with? Just go to the Lord. I'm not asking for much. I'm asking for 10, 15 minutes at the end of your day today. After everybody goes to sleep, just stay up for another 10, 15 minutes and pray to the Lord. Go to Him and say, Lord, what do I need more? Faith, peace, or courage? Because all of it has been given to me because you overcome sin and Satan. This week, you know, being, uh, being a preacher by trade is a lot of fun. I, I, I went to school for this. I love my job, believe it, I really do. This is the wonderful, one of the most wonderful privileges of my life. But one of the hardest things about being a preacher is that you, you have to live in a state of constant conviction, okay? <laughs> okay? Because you don't want to be the robot up front, okay? This is what you guys need to do, but this guy doesn't have to. Um, this week I just picked one of the three. I just said, Lord, you know, what is an area, what, which, which is one of the three that I need to work on? And this is, I picked to cultivate my faith. And then at that moment, I just typed up a prayer, and I'm going to share it with you. This is what I said to the Lord. I let go, Lord. Cultivate my faith. May I not be blinded by potential problems and worries, but have faith to trust you, that you know all things and you were sent by God. Cultivate my faith. Grow it. May I trust you and do my best to obey and to follow you with all of my heart. That's what I'm encouraging you to do today. Take one and pray to the Lord, for he is near. I always close every sermon of mine by sharing the gospel. So I have been spoke, I've been speaking mainly to believers today, but today I want to speak to those of you here today that may not know where you are with Jesus Christ. If you're uncertain of where you stand, if you do not feel born again, if you're just kind of checking this Christian stuff out and you don't really know what to do with Jesus, then he offers you the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. What is the gospel? What do I mean by that? It's the good news. It's the Greek word you angle on. The gospel is simply put that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But today I wanted to do something a little bit different. I wanted to share an excerpt from somebody else's sermon. This is a closing paragraph from the most famous Christian in the 21st century. He spoke this in 1966. It's a paragraph that Billy Graham shared, and I want to share it with you guys. He says this, We are not going to heaven because we're good. We're not going to heaven because we work. We're not going to heaven because we pay. We're not going to heaven because of what he did we're, we're going to heaven because of what he did on the cross. And all I have to do is receive it. And it's so simple to receive Christ that millions stumble over its very simplicity. You see, God made it so simple that a child can believe. He made it so simple and easy that a blind man, a deaf man, and a dumb man can believe. A man of any race can believe. A man of any nationality, of any language can believe. And that's all God says you have to do to get to heaven is just believe. Now that word believe is a little bit more than maybe you think it is. It means commitment. It means surrender. It means that I give everything to have Jesus Christ and to trust Him alone for my forgiveness and my salvation. It means that the moment you receive Him, your name is written in the book of life. He continues, is your name written in the book of life? Are you sure you are going to heaven? Are you prepared to meet God? 
if there's any slightest doubt in your heart tonight that you're prepared to meet God, don't you dare leave here without settling it. Why? Because you may never have another hour, another moment like this. You cannot come to Christ anytime you want. The Bible says, He that hardened his heart, being often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off in that without remedy. And he closes with this, And you need Christ, and you need God in your life. You can receive him right now, and he can bring about tremendous change. Trust in him. Invite him into your heart, and believe in him as Lord of your life. That is my prayer for us today. If you do not know Christ Jesus, see me after the service. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Uh, your, your word is living. It is active. It pierces our soul and our mind and our hearts. Lord, I pray that if we are believers, if we trust in you, if we have denied ourselves, take up our cross and follow you, if we claim the cross of Christ, Lord, that we would continually cultivate our faith, we would grow in it. Lord, that we would be courageous to the non-believers, to the people in our lives that need to hear love and sometimes confrontation. Lord, I pray that we would always then have the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. And Lord, for those that do not know you as Savior, that you, through your Spirit, would speak to them and that they would trust in you as Lord of their life. Thank you for today. I thank you um, for the faithfulness of the people at Calvary Bible Church. Some of the people have not been here for two years, but they continue to be faithful. Lord, bless them, be with them, be with those tuning in online. Thank you for those that are here this morning. May we go forth and be your lights to the world. May we be different. May we be bold. May we be your followers and disciples at all times. And thank you for today. And we lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.